1: Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast, I'm Adam. I'm delighted that this show has been researched and written by my good friend and recent father, Chris Wood. It's a really interesting case around a theme we encounter again and again on this podcast that you never really know what is happening with other people. This difference between perception and reality is exacerbated by social channels such as Facebook, where many people like to present their best side to society. But the reality is, as we know, often so very different. Thanks again, Chris. I'm out of the country for a while with no access to phone or email, so if you've supported me on Patreon this week, a huge thank you, and I'll give you a shout-out on the show when I'm back. I so appreciate the support of every single person on Patreon. I would like to point you in the direction of a new podcast called Blood Ties by father and daughter, Geoffrey and Molly Wansell. Like me, many of you would have read Geoffrey's books and seen him on TV. So take a listen to Blood Ties and let me know what you think. So on to today's story. The year began with the world celebrating the dawn of the new millennium. Remember those heady days when your expectations and aspirations seemed to be renewed with hope and vigour for this was the beginning of a new century. Surely nothing would be beyond us and the folly of the 20th century was all in the past. <laughs> How was it for you? Did it help a new beginning? I was unwell and I was fast asleep by 9.30pm. I'm sure there's some metaphor there. In September 2000, Sir Steve Redgrave won his fifth consecutive gold medal, this one at the Sydney Olympics. An amazing effort. It really puts my... Miserly five minutes a week on the rowing machine at my local gym to shame. Although I should mention that I did outpace a 74-year-old lady on my left last week. A not inconsiderable achievement, I'm sure you'll agree. Just before Christmas, Madonna got hitched to Guy Ritchie in Scotland. I wonder who did the entertainment at that wedding reception. Must have been quite a responsibility for someone. And speaking of entertainment, in music we saw several acts slogging it out for the right to be number one at Christmas. Robbie Williams, the legend that is Craig David, Madonna herself and Madonna herself were among those helping to take the once prestigious honour until, of course, it was destroyed by X Factor. However, none of these artists were successful, not even the shy and retiring Craig David. This accolade was instead reserved for, yep, you guessed it, that musical powerhouse Bob the Builder with Can We Fix It? Not really sure there's too much to say after that. Bring back elbow maybe? Hmm, actually that's a close call. Today's story comes from Formby, an attractive town in Merseyside in the northwest of the UK. A commuter town for Liverpool, Formby is also popular with day trippers and holiday makers discovering the beautiful coastline and the dunes that the town has to offer. Indeed, the area is conserved by the National Trust and is a site of special scientific interest. Due to some of the rare and diverse wildlife located there. The town has always proved a popular residence for many local sports people, with people such as Stephen Gerrard, Wayne Rooney and Raheem Sterling at one time or another choosing to call the town home. Malcolm Melinda and Anders had lived at Kent Road in Formby for many years. Malcolm, aged 47, was employed as a car production worker at the Ford factory in nearby Halewood. Marrying in October 1974 the couple had two sons Paul and Neil and to all intents and purposes they were the archetypal family unit living a happy, comfortable life. But disaster would strike the family in January 1988 as Malcolm Anders was involved in a serious work-based accident involving a forklift truck which left her unable to work. And suddenly his young family were plunged into desperation. After all Her husband and father had without any warning whatsoever suddenly lost his mobility. Malcolm was paralysed from the waist down and required either a wheelchair or two sticks to be able to move at all. But the family rallied round and Linda worked increasingly hard to keep the family finances afloat. She worked at a local garden centre in Ince Blundell, a small village in Merseyside, where she was a very popular member of staff with both customers and colleagues. Despite her hard-working nature, Linda still made sure she kept her social life active and she loved to go line dancing at the nearby Wild Bill's Line Dancing Club, which she generally did once a week. She'd made many friends at the club and it did, of course, also serve as a distraction to the busy life she had at home, where she now cared for her disabled husband. Before working at the garden centre, Linda had been a carer for an elderly couple so she was very adept at this side of her home life. She was happy to care for Malcolm but as those of you who have cared for a relative know it's a tough job and you certainly do need some space sometimes. Malcolm adapted relatively well to the change in his circumstances by helping disabled causes and he even set up his own self-help group in Merseyside but then everything changed. Five days before Christmas 2000 Tragedy would strike in a most horrifying way and with it shattering the Anders' family and the local community in and around Formby. Neil Anders, now aged 22, the couple's youngest son, returned home from work at the local shell garage, only to discover his father Malcolm lying in the driveway of their home, distressingly calling for help. Malcolm had cuts to his face and he lay stricken on the ground. However worse was to follow as Malcolm intimated to his son that the intruder had also attacked Linda and she was somewhere inside the house. She was, and Neil found his 44-year-old mum lying dead in a pool of blood in the kitchen with a large saboteer knife embedded in her neck. Horrifyingly, he could see that there were other stab wounds to her head. This was a brutal attack on Linda that would stun family and friends and baffle detectives. Why on earth would such a popular couple have been targeted in such a horrendous way? And if it was a burglary going wrong, why use such high levels of violence on Linda? Detective Superintendent Julianne Wallace headed up the inquiry. Malcolm Anders was clearly a key witness to the events that unfolded on that dreadful day. He too had been assaulted by the intruder, and from his hospital bed Malcolm told detectives that the man had killed Linda after having broken into the house and ransacked it. Wheelchair-bound Malcolm sat with a police artist and compiled an e-fit of the attacker responsible. He told police that he'd been grabbed from behind by a thin-faced, unshaven man who pushed him to the ground before fleeing the scene. Police were, understandably, extremely concerned. They'd been tasked with apprehending a most dangerous man, someone that was both capable of horrific murder and also assaulting a severely disabled man within their own home. Detectives knew there had been a recent spate of burglaries in the area, which prompted a fear in police and the local community that there was a killer burglar on their hands, something that would clearly be a terrifying prospect for anyone living in the immediate locality, and of course senior police officers thinking about career progression. With Malcolm being the key witness, Police also needed to build up a picture of his whereabouts on the day of the murder. He told police that he'd been to the library that afternoon and when he returned home he noticed that the back gates to the house were open. Upon seeing this, Malcolm went through the gates to check why they were open and that was when he was set upon by the attacker. With Malcolm's statement and an e-fit of the attacker collected, the police investigation was now in full swing as detectives sought to hunt down the killer. But there was some ambiguity in the evidence. A forensic officer's examination of the crime scene generated some doubt about what Malcolm Anders had told detectives. Forensic examinations of the crime scene showed that someone had actually cleaned the scene of Linda's murder. Now this evoked suspicions within the police team. After all, why would the murderer waste precious getaway time cleaning up? Furthermore, it would surely be unlikely that a murderer would, having already killed Linda, leave a witness who would be in a position to provide police with an invaluable EFIT fit and description of the perpetrator. The EFIT fit itself that Malcolm provided to police was also considered to be impossibly accurate. It just didn't really make sense when he would have been in shock by what he had seen. Why was he so thorough with the EFIT? fit Police would have expected a far more cloudy judgement from a victim who had just recently been subjected to a most distressing assault, coupled with the awful realisation that his wife had been brutally murdered in their own house. There was also doubt about whether anything had been stolen from inside the house by the so-called burglar. A handbag that contained £180 had been left totally untouched, and there was no evidence of forced entry to the house, hardly obvious signs of a burglary gone wrong. Police were soon scrutinising Malcolm's alibi that he'd been to the library on the day of the murder and they found inconsistencies there too. A police officer noticed that despite heavy rainfall that day the ground beneath Malcolm's car was still dry. This proved that the car had not been anywhere that day. Malcolm was now beginning to look more like a suspect than the innocent victim he'd betrayed himself to be. But there was a major problem with this theory And that was Malcolm's physical capabilities. Just how could a man who was so badly disabled have overpowered a fit and healthy Linda and managed to inflict such appalling injuries? The post-mortem on Linda's body revealed that her skull had been deeply pierced 15 times with another 40 injuries including knife wounds to her arms showing that she'd resisted her attacker before finally succumbing. There was surely no way that Malcolm could have been capable of such a forceful attack. Police decided to delve further into Malcolm's history, and what they discovered was really quite astonishing. Following the industrial accident suffered at work back in 1988, Malcolm had been registered disabled. But police learned that Ford, Malcolm's employer, had actually hired private investigators to verify Malcolm's disability claims. When detectives went to visit the private investigators responsible, they uncovered a shocking truth. Whilst the original file on Malcolm Anders had been destroyed some years previously, what they did manage to uncover was a lone videotape. And this tape turned out to be of crucial importance to the police. The investigators had covertly filmed Anders as he went about his day-to-day business. Rather than recording footage of a man with hugely limited mobility, however, It revealed that Malcolm was walking around with no physical impairment whatsoever. He was ably wandering around his garden and up and down the street he lived. It showed Anders on the day of a medical appointment he had, entering his house, grabbing two walking sticks and tossing them into his car before setting off for the appointment. The investigators then filmed him leaving the medical centre, producing an Oscar winning performance of someone with a severe walking disability, before again throwing the sticks back into his car and driving off home again. But when his guard was up, or he found himself in more public spaces, he would miraculously lose the power in his legs and immerse himself back into the charade of a fake disability, and this had enabled him to claim various disability benefits. I wonder if Linda had known. She must have done. In terms of the police investigation, of course, This was a huge breakthrough. The benefits were twofold. Not only did it prove that Anders would have been physically capable of murdering his wife in the manner in which she was killed, but also that nothing he told them could be trusted. He was clearly a very adept liar. With Anders' secret now exposed, Detective Jones was from this point satisfied that he was a fraud. This was reinforced further when medical experts also confirmed that there was no physical cause for his disability, no reason for him to walk with sticks or need the aid of a wheelchair. But this revelation, although an exciting breakthrough was not definite proof that he had murdered his wife so police continued to delve into the history of Malcolm Anders and gather more evidence against him. When police challenged Anders in relation to the inconsistencies in his story he bizarrely changed his version of events he claimed that he was not quite with it when he was first questioned and that what had actually happened was that he and Linda had been arguing after she took his sticks from him and she was armed with a knife suggesting that he was in actual effect the victim of a domestic situation this change of heart was of course at complete odds with the clarity of the story he initially told police. At interview, police also noticed bruising on his hands. An expert was subsequently able to show that these bruises were an exact match of the brass rivets on the handle of the knife used to kill Linda. And further forensic work had also revealed a speck of Linda's blood on Malcolm's shirt. By May 2001, police were in possession of adequate evidence to charge Malcolm Anders with the murder of his wife. Significantly at this point, and Anders then admitted that he must have killed his wife during an argument, although he had no recollection of it. Despite this apparent confession, he remained defiant and pleaded not guilty, thus, forcing a trial at Liverpool Crown Court that would begin on the 31st of October 2001. The jury of six men and six women sat through the grueling trial lasting 16 days. Anders denied murder and reverted back to his initial story that an intruder had been the killer. On day one of the trial, it emerged that Anders had claimed his wife was having an affair with her line dancing teacher and this was likely to be the motive for the murder. Anders certainly believed that his wife was involved with another man and these fears appeared to be confirmed with the arrival of several anonymous letters that he had received. Two such letters were sent to Malcolm and another to the teacher of Linda's line dancing class. All three letters claimed that Malcolm had been a fool for failing to realise what Linda was up to. Incredibly though, these letters too were false, and Malcolm had actually sent himself these poison pen letters in a warp bid to generate sympathy and to discredit his wife. In court it was shown that the letters had been recovered, and the stamp from one of them revealed a DNA trace which confirmed that Malcolm Anders had been the sender. DS Wallace Jones said, There was absolutely no evidence of Linda Anders having an affair. It was all in his mind. She'd been to see a solicitor about getting a divorce, but I think the letters were just part of him trying to win the sympathy vote. What was becoming clear was that the pair's relationship had begun to falter some time prior to the murder. As can be the case with so many couples, To the outsider looking in, the marital home can often appear to be serene and problem-free. However, it was clear that the pair had very different notions and ideas of what they wanted to do in life and as a result seldom did anything of a social nature together. It appeared that Linda was spending more and more time away from the house, which her husband possibly resented and led to him creating the fictional tale that Linda was having an affair Convincing himself of this much in the same way he'd been convincing other people he was severely disabled for the past 10 years. Linda's sister Heather would later confirm that the pair were far from the happy couple that many people imagined. She painted a picture of Malcolm Anders being controlling and even very cruel. Linda would do everything, claimed Heather. He would say he could not manage to do things, so Linda would wait on him hand and foot. Malcolm Anders certainly succeeded in pulling the wool over people's eyes. As Heather confirmed, as far as we were concerned, he was suffering pain. The QC for the prosecution told the court that Anders was certainly not the disabled man he purported to be. He said he was physically able to do anything he wanted and that doctors had found no reason for him to need a wheelchair. Furthermore, there was absolutely no evidence of muscle wastage in his legs which would have impaired his ability to move. The jury was shown footage of Anders wandering around without his wheelchair with no apparent discomfort. All of this, of course, was helping to build the case around the assertion that Malcolm Anders was more than capable of murdering his wife. The prosecution went further, claiming that Anders was capable of stabbing his wife repeatedly, which caused her skull to disintegrate in places, then move her body, attempt to clean the scene, And then make the house look as though it had been ransacked by burglars, and given himself the bruising to help create the image that a genuine burglary had occurred. Despite all of this evidence, though, Anders, who sat throughout the trial in his wheelchair alongside the dock, persisted with his lies. He told the jury, I am disabled. I could not and did not do what would be required to kill her. After 16 days of evidence, it was time for the jury to announce whether or not they believed Malcolm Anders' version of events. On Wednesday, the 21st of November 2001, Anders, wearing a black polo neck sweater, learned his fate. When the unanimous verdict of guilty reverberated around the courtroom, he closed his eyes and hung his head slightly. From that point on, he kept his eyes covered with his hands. The recorder of Liverpool, Judge David Clark, said, The jury have convicted you on clear evidence of the brutal murder of your wife. Only you will ever know for sure why you did it. Different views were put forward in relation to why he'd murdered Linda. There was a suggestion she was considering leaving her husband. Having grown tired of his selfish ways, the police believed he may not have been able to cope without her, or perhaps he was even worried that his lies were about to be exposed which would reveal him to be the benefits fraudster that he was. And as for why he'd faked the disability in the first place, detectives could only speculate upon this, although the financial gains he was receiving were doubtless uppermost in his thoughts. After all, it was believed that he'd managed to dupe the taxpayer out of over £100,000 over the decade. One of Linda's colleagues and friends, Jill Tracy, had her own suspicions about why Malcolm Anders murdered Linda. She said, Linda didn't talk openly about the problems between her and her husband, but we all knew it was not a happy marriage. On the day she died, she was going to a Christmas party with her line dancing friends, and we suppose this just tipped him over the edge. But I guess we may never know the full reasons for her death. While the exact reasoning behind the murder may never be known, it would certainly appear that Malcolm Anders was a controlling and possessive man and had a deep-rooted resentment of his wife's enjoyment of her work and social life. The only option for the judge in terms of sentencing was a life-term imprisonment. He called Anders a clever and manipulative man who would anything he thought would be to his advantage. He added, "'Your comfortable lifestyle as an invalid was coming under threat, "'and you resented her enjoyment of her work and social life, "'and when matters came to a head he reacted with extreme violence.'" What you did not only cut short her life but cruelly deprived your sons of their mother and her relatives were a much loved daughter and sister. His actions that day had far-reaching effects not only upon Linda's family but also those lucky enough to be in her large circle of friends. All those who knew Linda remember her with warmth and affection. She was regarded as the life and soul of the line dancing class and never had a crossword for anyone. Her line dancing teacher said that he and the rest of the class were absolutely and utterly devastated. It took the heart out of the class. She will never be forgotten. I still think of her every time I walk into the halls, smiling and joking. Linda's boss at the garden centre echoed these sentiments, saying, Linda got on well with all the staff, without exception, and she had lovely manners. Linda's family knew she was very happy working here, and we wanted to make a gesture in her memory. This being the case her bench now sits in a display garden at the Lady Green Garden Centre, a poignant tribute to her. It bears the following inscription, Sit here for a while, smile and remember me, in memory of Linda Anders. So what do you make of what we've heard today? What a waste of Linda's life when she had so much to offer and so much to live for. And what of the callous murderer? He continues to serve his sentence in the slammer, and now, somewhat ironically, suffers from curvature of the spine, having spent so long hunched up in the very wheelchair he was pretending to need. Just a tiny bit of poetic justice, perhaps. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime weekly podcast. Please join us on Facebook to discuss this story and all aspects of UK True Crime. If you'd like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where for less than a dodgy pint of lager, you can access 17 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content, as well as sleeping soundly at night knowing that you are helping me to continue publishing weekly episodes. Just imagine how good that will feel. So that is all for me for this week, with another big thanks to Chris Wood. Cheers, Chris. Until we speak again, it is cheerio from me. Stay classy.